Now, one thing I wanted to address before I get into the message last week as I was talking about truth, um, a question came up to me afterwards that I wanted to share with all of you because I think everyone might have this question. Um, I had talked about the topic of demons, and I had mentioned that you just need to focus on doing God's will, and one of the examples I had provided is that you don't need to go seeking out demons to do battle with. And I said that because the Bible nowhere commands you to do that, nowhere. It never commands you to go looking for demons. In fact, very much the opposite, it commands you to keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ upon God the Father. Um, to focus on demons and the activity of Satan is actually one of the schemes of Satan and the demons. He wants you to focus on him. He wants you to come looking for him. And trust me, if you try to do battle with him on your own strength, you will not stand a chance. So the question came up, well, what happens when I do come across demons? Um, what do I do? Um, obviously, I'm not going to try to seek them out, but what if I come across them? Well, my advice to you would not, all be, would not be all that different from my advice if you were to come across any unbeliever. Remember that you have a soul that you're dealing with in front of you. And by the way, we're surrounded by demon activity all around us. We're just not as familiar of where it's coming from, but the influences are everywhere. But if you were to come across an individual who would happen to be possessed, um, first of all, you won't know for sure whether someone's possessed or not or whether mental there's some sort of mental illness there. But what I would do is simply what I would do with any unbeliever. I would share the gospel, and I would pray. And I might even open up the word and just start reading if um, that person is um, engaging in some sort of demonic chance, which happens sometimes. But uh, one of my mentors in the past, he was actually saved out of um, Satan worship. And he recalled to me that there was a place that he used to meet with other friends, and there was a lot of demonic supernatural activity that happened all the time. And then after he was saved, he went back to that place. Um, his friends were still there. The demonic activity was continuing. But amazingly enough, he walked into the room, and none of that activity was there when he was in that room. And I believe the reason for that is because he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You do not need to worry about the influence of demons. You just need to keep your eyes fixated upon God and doing His will. And maybe one of these days I'll do a more detailed lesson on that, but hopefully that's helpful. It's really no different than coming across an unbeliever because you are actually dealing with an unbeliever. Preach the gospel, and if by God's grace that person should respond to the gospel, that demon will be gone. And if not, preach the gospel anyway, pray for that person, and you never know what kind of seeds God is planting through your work, all right? So as we come back this morning and we consider this topic of the breastplate of righteousness, I think about what's going on all over the world today. I think about how we have so much disagreement about what is actually good and what is actually evil. Unfortunately, just last night, I saw the news that two LAPD officers, actually members of the sheriff's department, were shot while they were sitting in their vehicle. And there was actually footage of a man going in, pointing his gun through the side window, shooting it twice, and then running off. And what's even worse is that there were some people celebrating that action, declaring war upon police. And then, of course, when we look at the political parties, we know that there is a certain party that's advocating for the murder of the unborn. And they would argue with you that what you are arguing against is their own right to choose, their own reproductive health, which 
is baloney. But what it shows us is that in so many ways in this world, in so many ways in which we view life, in so many aspects of our life, we have so many disagreements because we are not founded upon the same truth of what is righteousness. If you've ever read through the Old Testament and you read through the book of Judges, you will see that during the book of Judges, which takes place over a time span of approximately 400 years, that nation of Israel spiraled downward further and further and further and further until you get towards the end of the book and they're committing the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. But the phrase that you see repeated, especially as you get towards the end of that book, is that in that day there was no king Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is what is happening today. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Last week I talked about truth, and obviously truth is foundational for all of that. But more specifically, the truth teaches us what is right. And it's not about what is right in my eyes or what is right in your eyes. It is about what is right in the eyes of our Lord. And we know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are perfectly united in, in all of this. And so as we come to this lesson this morning, we take a look at the next element of armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness. This is part five of this series, and this will probably go somewhere around 10 weeks total. There will be 10 parts to this. But we're looking at part five. This is Ephesians chapter six, and actually that should be 14b, not 15a, 14b. And our purpose is to understand the role of God's righteousness with yours in the spiritual war. So the role of God's righteousness and your righteousness as it relates to the spiritual war. And in our outline, we will examine righteousness in four different ways so that you may be able to properly equip this breastplate of righteousness. So what is the full armor? What does it mean to do everything in order to stand firm? Well, that's what leads into the elements of armor. And from verses 14 through 17, we see the six elements of armor. And the key command, verse 14, stand firm, therefore. And you see element one is the girding up your loins with truth. The element number two is the breastplate of righteousness. And number three is having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so this morning we will take a look at element number two. But the call is to stand firm, and the call is to stand firm assuming that we have put together these first three pieces. And then we will talk about the last three pieces that we take up in addition to that. But we'll take a look at our first section for this morning. As a reminder, we will examine righteousness in four different ways so that you can equip the breastplate of righteousness in the spiritual war. And the first way that we're going to look at righteousness is the fact that God is righteous, but we are not. God is righteous, but we are not. And by the way, when I talk about God's righteousness, that can be a very intimidating topic, and it should be, because God's righteous standard is perfection. It is way above us, and we can never meet that. But hopefully in this message, I will show you that God's righteousness, while it is certainly a good reason to fear the Lord with awe and trembling, it should also give you encouragement and peace. So as we take a look at 
verse 14. We see, once again, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And that's what we covered last week. But not only having girded your loins with truth, but also having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. And in fact, when we take a look at the first three elements, we'll notice the word having showing up three times. After seeing the command, stand firm, therefore, we see having girded your loins, having put on the breastplate, having shod your feet. And the idea is that you stand firm having done these things. These first three pieces of armor are foundational. You put these on first, and then you stand firm, and then take up the other three pieces. And we covered truth last time. But one thing that I did not mention last week, as we take a look at this imagery, as we take a look at this armor, Paul here actually has an image from the Old Testament that he's bringing to mind. Out of the book of Isaiah, and I'll just share this with you real quick, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah looks forward to a time in which the Messiah will come as a warrior. The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself. And of course, if you read Revelation, you know that Revelation chapter 19 reveals that he will do exactly that, that he will come on his white horse and he will wage war against the nations. But in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we see, then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this is interesting because who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of David, and Jesus is considered the son of David. But what's interesting here is that Jesus here is not being referred to as merely a branch, but he is being referred to as the stem of Jesse. Because this Jesus Christ, who would be the coming son of David, is the creator of Jesse himself. And so we go on to read verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And then verse 5, here's the image. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And so there is this picture that this messianic warrior will come and he will have armor that consists of these attributes of God. And furthermore, Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 through 17. Let me just read this for you. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. He is looking at the world, looking at how man has corrupted the world. Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man, and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And verse 17, we read, and he put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. I often chuckle but also grieve when I hear Jesus simply being portrayed as this really peaceful and kind of weak man who just wants everyone to love each other. And certainly I don't want to downplay the importance of our love for one another, but rest assured that Jesus is no weak man. And he is not simply characterized by peace all the time. He will come back, and when he comes back, he will come back to wage war. But this picture of this messianic warrior, this image is what Paul draws upon when he talks about us and our role in the spiritual battle today. There is a time in the future when Jesus Christ will return. But until then, we are his body. We as the church, we as believers, we are the body of Christ. 
and we today are engaging in this spiritual warfare. And so as we look again at verse 14, our section that we're going to look at is that second half of verse 14, which it says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I have a Greek word there in Greek. You don't need to worry about that. That's just a reminder to me. The Greek word for breastplate is theoraka. What does that sound like? Thorax, right. Thorax. This is referring to the part of the body between the neck and the abdomen. And obviously, so we understand the breastplate protects the upper body. It protects your heart and your lungs and your stomach and your kidney and your intestines and all those crucial organs that you have there in the midsection, the abdomen, and your upper body. And so this breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate for the warrior going into battle, I think the necessity of it is pretty obvious. You're going into war and someone could throw a, an arrow at you, can fling an arrow at you, and if you miss it with your shield, you need something that can protect you from hitting your heart or some other crucial organ. Or if you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat with someone else with a sword, you need something that can absorb those blows. And so the breastplate is of obvious importance. We get that. No soldier should ever go into combat without some sort of protection. Even police today, what do they have? They have bulletproof vests, right? Similar kind of function. But as we think about this breastplate of righteousness, we can't adequately put on this breastplate of righteousness without understanding what righteousness is. And so as we try to understand righteousness, let me just take this moment to remind you that God is both righteous and just. When we think of God, God is perfectly both righteous and just. And when we think about these two words, righteousness and justice, or righteous and just, they actually share the same root in the Greek. In the Greek, it's actually the same stem, but just in a different form. And it's not hard to understand why when we think about society today. We think about the need for both of them. See, righteousness relates to your conduct. What does it mean to be righteous? It means that you do what is right. That's simple, right? You do what is right rather than what is wrong. It implies that there is some sort of law that you're following. And we understand that in this society. So what is justice? Well, justice relates to the enforcement of righteousness. So if we have a God who is perfectly righteous, and he has given us a perfectly righteous law, justice means that that law will be perfectly enforced. And we even understand that in our society today, we even have the phrase law and order. There's even a popular TV series that has been running for over a decade called Law and Order. And we understand that the law defines for us what is right. And order is what is enforced by the police officers and the courts. And if you have one without the other, it's useless, right? I mean, think about it. If you have a law, but you have no way to enforce it, what good is that law? In fact, we're seeing that today, aren't we? We're seeing that in many cities. When people foolishly think that the solution is to abolish police, we're seeing in those cities what is the effect. We saw last night what was the effect to those two members of the sheriff's department. So law in order, you must have both a righteous law as well as the ability to enforce it, to be able to spot those who break it and to bring them to justice and enforce it. In fact, we even use that word, justice is done. And we usually use that phrase when in a courtroom setting 
when someone who is guilty has been pronounced guilty and sentenced to pay for the crime that he has committed. There is one more related word, and this is going to be important for some of the passages we look at, and that's the word justify. Obviously, justify and justice sound very similar in the Greek. Once again, it is the same stem. There is the word justify and justification. And when we hear this, the idea I want you to have in your head is that God is our judge. God is our judge, and being a perfectly righteous and just judge, He will give the verdict that you fully deserve. And God will either find you to be guilty and unrighteous, which is true for all of us who do not confess the Lord Jesus Christ, or He will pronounce you to be righteous and innocent. And to pronounce you as righteous or innocent, that is what the word justify means. So when we talk about justification by faith, we're talking about the fact that God has pronounced you righteous on the basis of your faith. But that brings up an interesting question when we think about true righteousness. Because when you think about the world today, you you wouldn't call someone righteous, someone who repeatedly broke the law and simply believed in something. Your greatest problem before God prior to Jesus Christ, is that you are unrighteous. That is your greatest problem. And it is repeated everywhere in Scripture. And I will show you just a few examples. But in addition, I just want to point out that God's holiness, when we say God is holy, His holiness is often expressed in the fact that He is perfectly both righteous and just. That He is a God of perfect righteousness and justice. And that's what makes him separate. That's what makes him holy. That makes him different from everyone on this earth. The only exception being his own son, Jesus Christ, because he too was God in human flesh. And so when we think about God's righteousness, I just want to take you back to the Old Testament. And let me just read these verses for you from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. In the book of Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel, they had already been rescued out of Egypt. They'd already received the law. They had wandered the wilderness for 40 years because of their rebellion against God. God had raised up a second generation, and now finally they're going to go and take over the promised land. They're going to go into the land that had been promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says this to them after providing them the law. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. In other words, he is saying that I have given you this law of God that you would obey this law when you go into the promised land. Verse 6, so keep them and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And listen to this, the fact that Israel was expected to obey the law was to be a testimony to all the other nations. It was to be a testimony that they were wise and understanding. And as we continue on, verse 7 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? And the fact that God was in the tabernacle, that traveling tent, He made Himself manifest through the Shekinah glory. And the idea is that when they went to worship God, they worshiped a real God and not just wooden idols. But then in verse 8, 
we conclude with this, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? You see, the law of God revealed to Moses showed the perfect righteousness of God himself. We know that God is perfect. We know that he is righteous. We know that he is holy. And in the Old Testament, they had the law to be able to see the level of holiness, righteousness, and justice demanded by God. That was God's righteousness revealed to them through that law. The problem is that righteousness set an impossibly high standard that we could never meet on our own. It demands perfection, and none of us are perfect. None of us. Even after we've been saved, we continue to stumble. But the difference between those who are saved versus those who are not is that those who us, of us who are saved can equip the breastplate of righteousness and the rest of the armor of God. But as we go into Romans chapter 1, I'm going back to the New Testament because when we talk about righteousness, there is no book in the New Testament, that talks about righteousness more than the book of Romans. If you were to read through Romans, just count the number of times that you see the word righteousness show up. It is absolutely central to the gospel. And in fact, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 specifically, this is Paul's thesis statement. You see, the first 15 verses of the first chapter, Paul is just giving an introduction, giving greetings, giving an update on his situation. But now he's about to go into the main teaching of this book, which is to go into the gospel in detail. And this is his summary in verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And look at verse 17. For in it, what is the it? It's the gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And it's going to be in the book of Romans that Paul reveals how righteousness is given to us on the basis of faith. How God can be perfectly righteous in doing that, even though we've done nothing to pay for our own sins. And even verse 18, as he starts to go into the depravity of man, he says this in verse 18, and verse 18, if you want a summary verse for everything that is going on in the world today and every day until Jesus Christ comes, this is a great verse to memorize. Romans 1:18, when God says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and what? Unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So righteousness is a very central theme right from the beginning of the book of Romans. And even when we get to chapter 3, this is a very well-known section of Paul's writing. For any of us who think that we are good, for any of us who think that we can stand before God, and you have met many people who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ who have said, you know what, I'm a good person. I, I think I've done enough. I think I've done more good than bad in my life. I, I think God is going to forgive me. I don't, I don't need that stuff. Well, your problem is right here in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. What does Paul say? As it is written, there is none, what? None. How many? None. 
Not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There are so many false religions in the world. And I have unfortunately heard some people who call themselves pastors or preachers who will say that there are multiple paths to heaven. I've seen recent surveys that the majority, not the majority, but a large percentage of people who call themselves evangelicals, who call themselves Christians, actually believe there are multiple paths to heaven. Well, if there are multiple paths to heaven, then Paul is a liar. Because he says there is none who seek after God. And you have to understand this, even no matter how religious a person is in their own religion, and no matter how devoted, no matter how devout they are to their spiritual walk in whatever it is they believe, all it proves is that they refuse to seek after the true God and that they believe themselves to be righteous by what they are doing. And as we get to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, you see from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is building a case that man is completely depraved. Man is depraved, can do nothing on his own power to prove himself righteous. And this is the summary statement after all that he has said across chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. No one is without excuse, whether you have heard the law of God or whether your conscience is the one that bears testimony against you. No one will be able to be excused before God. Verse 20, it says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And I am so thankful that the book of Romans did not end there. Because if the book of Romans ended there, you have no hope. You have absolutely no hope because the only manifestation of righteousness given into this world was the law of God. And the law of God does nothing but condemn you. It tells you what a wicked sinner you are. It shows how rebellious we are. But. That brings us to the second section. While we learned through these verses that God is righteous and we are not, God did not just leave us hanging there. God did not leave us to die, which he would have been just to do. It would have been perfectly just for all of us to be condemned to eternal hell. Let me say that again. God would have been perfectly just if he had sent us all into hell for all eternity. So when people start asking questions, well, why didn't God save this person? What about this person who hasn't heard the gospel? Listen, you are failing to recognize what it is that we deserve to begin with. We deserve hell. And as we see in, starting in verse 2, we will see that God declared us righteous by faith. 
So following those two verses in Romans where Paul says that no one will be declared righteous before God. We see in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we read this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Let me stop you right there, because up until now, the righteousness of God had only been revealed in the law. But what Paul is saying here is that there is another way that this righteousness has been revealed. And this righteousness, having been witnessed by the law and the prophets, in verse 22 says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We all fall short of His standard. Verse 24, being justified, in other words, declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Amen, indeed. God didn't stop with just His law, but He showed us another way of righteousness. That is why He sent His Son into the world. And there are so many Christians today, so many self-proclaimed Christians at least, who want to just emphasize God's love. God is love. God is love. God is love. Well, I will tell you, you cannot understand God's love unless you first understand His holiness, His righteousness, and His justice. And when we go back into the Old Testament, even before the Mosaic Law, even in the days of Abraham, God counted Abraham as righteous. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, previously Abraham was talking to God about the promises, the Abrahamic promises that he would be a father to a great nation. And Abraham asked, how do I know that these things are so? God affirms him that he will make it come about, that he will bring his promises to fulfillment. And then in verse 6, we read this, Then he, being Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, being God, reckoned it to him, Abram, as righteousness, simply because he believed the Lord. And that is the grace of God, that belief in the Lord will become righteousness for us. And if you want a verse to memorize that captures the essence of righteousness as it relates to the gospel, this is a beautiful verse to memorize. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. We read, He, referring to God the Father, made Him, referring to Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Let me stop right there. God the Father made God the Son, and God the Son who knew no sin, that is to recognize that He was perfectly righteous. There was no sin in His life. He never sinned against God. God the Father made God the Son who was perfectly righteous without sin to become sin on our behalf. And how did He do that? He did that on the cross. When he went to the cross, when he died on the cross, and it wasn't merely the crucifixion at the hands of men. It wasn't just the beating. It wasn't just the mocking of men. It was the wrath of God being poured down from heaven towards God, his son. It was when all of light went out and there was complete darkness for three hours. It was when Jesus Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It was at that time that God poured out spiritual wrath upon His own Son. And Jesus Christ, His Son, who did not deserve that wrath, but voluntarily went to the cross to pay that price of God's punishment for the sake of those who would believe in Christ. That is the gospel. And so he, God the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is the result, that when God made Jesus Christ to become sin on our behalf, when Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay for the wrath, to pay the price of sins, bearing the wrath of God upon himself, upon his soul, the purpose of that was so that we might become, what? The righteousness of God in Him. What does that mean? That means when you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. Because the sin that you bore was paid for at the cross. So when you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly understood your need for His death on the cross, you can have seasons of difficulty. You can feel like a failure in how you have lived out your Christian life. But the promise here is that you bear the righteousness of God. And if, when you are taken from this life and you stand before God, God sees not your sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. And this righteousness is the only kind of righteousness that we can have. We need to put aside any righteousness of our own to the side. Any righteousness, anything you take pride over in your life that you have done before becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing more than rubbish. And this is a good example, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18. This parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. We see the purpose of why Jesus told this parable. Verse 9 says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And he says this in verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. And he goes on to say this, verse 12, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So what we see in verse 12 is that this tax collector, he is very much religious. He is devout. He does all the religious practices. But there's a problem. He doesn't do these religious practices out of a true worship of God, but out of exaltation to himself, to take pride in his own righteousness. And in contrast, verse 13, but the tax collector, he can't even stand where the Pharisee is standing. He's standing some distance away, says verse 13. And he's not even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven. That is actually a symbol of shame. And he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And in that one statement, he recognized who he's talking to. He recognized he needs God's mercy. And he recognizes that he is a sinner. 
He has nothing to boast of, nothing at all. He is completely humbled and broken before God. That is what God wants out of us, that we are broken, that we do not take any pride in our own works. And even now as Christians, even what you do for Christ should be for Christ and not for your own exaltation. It should not be for people to throw accolades at you, throw compliments, to lift you up and say, look at what a godly man or woman this person is. I can look back at this past year and tell you that this past year I've never taught and preached as often as I have here. And yet I know that it's none of those actions that are going to make me righteous before God. I can think about all the Bible studies, the times that I've tried to evangelize people, the time I've spent in the Bible studying, reading, having spiritual discussions, encouraging fellow saints, but none of that is what makes me righteous before God. What makes me righteous before God is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That and that alone. And what I do now, I do now simply because the Lord gives me the power to do it. And there is nothing more that I love than the church and to see the church come together and see the church grow, to see the church grow in its understanding of God's word and living out the word, glorifying God. And even in this time of darkness, even in this time of mocking, even in this time of people who are pushing forth all kinds of ungodly ideas, the greatest way that we can give glory to God is to stand firm upon God and his truth. And so verse 14, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. In other words, he was declared righteous. Talking about the tax collector. This tax collector went to his house, declared righteous rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a time we will be exalted, but that time is not right now. That will come in the future when we are brought into the presence of our God. And as a reminder, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, you've probably heard this many times. When people talk about their righteous deeds, when they think, say, I think I'm a good person, I'll be okay, I don't need that. I think God is going to see that I've done more good than bad. This is a good verse to go to, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah says this, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And this word for filthy garment, this is much more delicate than what Isaiah is really referring to. But let us just say this. Whatever righteous deeds you have done before confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, is garbage. It means nothing. And what is the difference between someone who doesn't know Christ that may do a good deed and someone who knows Christ that does a good deed? Well, the one who doesn't know Christ and does a good deed does it for their own. They do it in order to feel like they can earn their own salvation. They do it to help fill their own sense of righteousness. They don't do it for the glory of God. The Christian, the one who has confessed Christ, who does the same good deed, does it for the glory of God. That is the difference. And when you have kids, it's kind of like when your kids come to you and ask for money, right? You know, a lot of times when your kids, they come ask for money, they don't just come and ask for money, right? They come and they ask, how's your day? You know, I missed you. It's good to talk to you. You know, butter you up a little bit. 
by the way, can I have some money? Right? And you know the difference between someone who comes with that ulterior motive versus someone who comes and talks to you simply because they miss you. Right? Same action, but the motives make all the difference. The motives make all the difference. And so that brings us to our third section. The first was that God is righteous, we are not. Second is that God has declared us righteous by faith, that is through the gospel. But third is now that God calls us to live righteously. God calls us to live righteously. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. We saw this earlier. I even brought it back up last week. And it's good to read it again. Verse 22, this is the put off and put on. This is the practice of a Christian, that we are putting off the old self, putting on the new. Verse 22 says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That's how we operated prior to Christ. And verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Very critical, the mind. And verse 24, and that you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we see there, once again, the correlation between righteousness and holiness and how it's tied into the truth and how it's tied into this new self that you have. The new self that you put on says it has been created. It has been created not by you. It has been created by God. God has made you a new creation if you have confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, as a new creation, you have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But the idea that you're putting on this new self, that you're putting on this new creation that was created by God, the idea that you're putting it on means that your actions should start to change as well. You see, God looks at you and sees the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, no matter what. But now for us, we have the opportunity to grow into that righteousness. We have the opportunity to become more like Christ. And that's what this idea is, putting off the old, putting on the new. This is an ongoing process where you're becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, we see righteousness show up once again. Verse 7 says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is in reference to those who walk in darkness. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light. And verse 9, for the fruit of the light, meaning that as you walk in the light, this is the fruit that should result. This is not how you earn your salvation. This is the fruit of that salvation. You see the difference? That this is not what you do to contribute to your salvation. Jesus Christ did all of that. But once you've been saved, this is the result. There should be a difference in your life. There should be a difference in how you walk. And he says the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. We saw that verse last week when we were looking at truth. The fruit of light is not just truth. It is also righteousness. It is righteous behavior, not according to the world standard. Not according to what you think God will approve without looking at the Bible. But it is according to God's word. There are so many people, so many Christians I come across, 
who do not read the word and think what they are doing is righteous. They just say it's righteous because they know in their heart this feels good and God will approve it. You are doing exactly what the Israelites did in the book of Judges. You're just doing what is right in your own eyes and saying it belongs to God. You're doing the same thing as the Israelites before they were exiled out of the promised land because of their disobedience. Our standard of righteousness has to conform to the ultimate lawgiver. And it should really be motivated out of the love that God has shown for us. Take a look at Romans chapter 6, verses 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, previously we were slaves to sin, that you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, have been freed from sin, you became slaves of what? Righteousness. Righteousness. We are now slaves of righteousness. If you want to live up to the new creation that God has given you, you need to tap into the power that God has given you by the Holy Spirit and by His Word to live up to the righteousness that God wants us to live up to. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Peter says this, Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely. This is your future hope. Fix it completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is talking about the return of our Lord. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So in other words, Peter is calling us to be obedient, to be holy, to walk in a manner that glorifies God. For this reason, verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And now that brings us to our fourth and final section. I know these are a lot of verses, but this is a big topic. As we get to the final section, we get to the breastplate of righteousness, we return back to our verse and we consider what this means to put it on. Stand firm, therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. There's been a lot of debate between academics and scholars and commentators. Is this talking about God's righteousness or is this talking about our righteousness? Well, certainly this is not our self-righteousness prior to coming to God. We know that. That's clear. But whether you want to make this about God's righteousness, and if you take this as God's righteousness, it means that God's righteousness protects you from the attacks of Satan. Or you can make this about the believer's righteousness, meaning that this is the righteousness that we are to live out. Kind of like what we have been seeing in those verses from Ephesians that we just read. But what I would say is, regardless of which path you take, they're both connected together. They're both connected together. Because the righteousness of God is what allows you to live in righteousness to God. Your righteousness to God is not possible without God giving you His righteousness first. And certainly Satan can attack you from both angles. The schemes of Satan are legion. There are many. There are countless. And so I would say that we don't necessarily have to make too sharp of a division between one type of righteousness versus the other. But here's one of the implications. One of the implications is that there is no condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is another great memory verse. Paul says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Hallelujah. Amen. No condemnation. When you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, that salvation that you have from God can never be taken away. There is no condemnation when you stand before God because what he sees is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, if you believe in the gospel, God's righteousness protects you. And this is so valuable for those of us who struggle. For those of us who look back and may think that, oh, what what have I been doing all this time that I've been a believer? Well, beloved, there's no greater time than the present. And it starts with resting in these truths because while the righteousness of God is often a source of fear, even legalism, a lot of people recoil. They they shirk back from the righteousness of God. They don't want to hear about the righteousness of God. But what I'm telling you is that the righteousness of God should be something that you glory in. The righteousness of God is where you should find your comfort because it is His righteousness and not yours. You are covered by his righteousness, and there is no one that can take that away from you. And even Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, at the beginning of chapter 1, after Paul starts his greeting, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And verse 4, he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why did he chose us before the foundation of the world? Why did he choose us? It says that we would be holy and blameless before him. And it says, in love. And in love in this translation, is connected to verse 5. I would argue it's with verse 4, that he chose us to be holy and blameless, and he did it out of his love. But even if you connect it with verse 5, it says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This is God's love. This is God's mercy. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5 says this, But God, the two most beautiful words in the New Testament, because when you read the first three verses, it talks about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, we were dead. We did nothing to make ourselves righteous. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by the gift of God, you have been saved. This is the love, grace, and mercy of God. And you cannot fathom this unless you understand God's holiness and righteous and justice. That is the whole point of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, He so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that he who believes in Him will not perish but have life everlasting. Believing in Christ because of His righteousness, that is the gospel. And so when you share the gospel with others, you want to help them understand their need. You want to help them understand their unrighteousness before God the Father. And you want to help them understand that the only way to address this situation was for God the Father to send God the Son, who was perfectly righteous in every way, in order to die on the cross to pay for the sins of those who would believe in Him. 
And if you're here this morning, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in person, if you have not confessed the Lord Jesus Christ, I have just been spending the better part of an hour explaining why you must. And all it takes is this. There is no work on your behalf. You just need to recognize that you are broken, that you have nothing to offer God, that there is nothing good, that whatever good works are nothing more than filthy rags. And that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died to pay for the sins that we so desperately needed to be paid. And so what it takes is to believe and to repent, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess him as Lord and Savior, and to repent, to turn away from your prior manner of life. And now follow after Christ. This is the gift of faith. And you can do it even now. You can do it where you're at. And if you're here, you can talk to me. You can talk to any one of the deacons. If you're online, come by the church. Give us a call, write to the church. We'll set up a time with you. We'd love to talk to you about this, but this is such an important message, and righteousness is right at the center of our need in the gospel. Now, my question for you, have you equipped the breastplate of righteousness? Because what this means is that you trust in the righteousness of God. You trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ on the cross. That there is nothing that you can add to the works of Jesus Christ to make you worthy of heaven, to make you worthy of salvation. There is nothing you bring to it. There is nothing you add to it. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You put on the breastplate of righteousness, resting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the work that he performed, recognizing that when Satan comes and tempts you to question your own salvation, when Satan comes to make you feel guilty that you have not done enough, when Satan comes to make you feel guilty about the latest instance in which you have stumbled or you have failed to obey God, you fall back upon the righteousness of God and remember that the righteousness of God covers you. But the righteousness of God also means that we are now free. We are free. We are no longer slaves of sin. When Romans says that we have been delivered from darkness, that we are no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness, it means that you now have the power to obey God. You now have the power that you did not have before to bring God glory. You now have the power to go to God's throne room of grace and pray to Him. Sometimes you guys don't pray because you're afraid of what you're going to say. You don't know what to say. Listen, if your children have been estranged from you for a long time, you're not worried about what they're going to say. You just want them to come. Come to God and speak to Him. The Holy Spirit will inform you what to say. Take a moment to praise God. Even maybe read the Scriptures to God. Sing a song to God. Sing a song of praise. Give thanks to God for His Son. Ask for wisdom from God. Ask for strength. You have access to strength by God the Holy Spirit. We have access to God's power in order to be the righteousness of God, in order to grow into becoming more and more like God's Son, Jesus Christ. You see, in the first three chapters, when, when Paul is, is talking about theology of the gospel, the theology of God's redemption, he ends with this prayer, and this is a fitting way for us to end as well. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. I'm just going to read this through. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name 
that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Holy Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.